Hi, everyone. And I have a quick question to, to ask our guests today. So respond to this statement. Humanity today benefits from generative AI. I'll start with Amir. Yes, no. Quick, quick, answer, quick answer. Yes and no. <laughs> okay, Patricia. Yes, for the most part. Yes, for the most part. Okay. So that was Amir Faisal, who is CEO and co-founder of Aggregate Intellect, and Patricia Thane, who is co-founder and CEO of Private AI. I'm pleased that both have decided to actually join me today to discuss this technology that's been in the news for some time. So I'm going to remove you first from here so I can give the audience a little bit of background on this topic. So Elon Musk, had, who was one of the co-founders of OpenAI, who built Dolly and ChatGPT, said this. He said, AI is so scary good because it means the end of homework and teaching children as we know it. So this begs the question, have we finally arrived? Has technology finally given us the ease, the convenience that we've been striving for? So we've seen chat GPT, we've seen Dolly, who lends out AIs coming out. Generative AI is all the rage these days, or is it just hype? I'm Hesse Jones and welcome to Tech Uncensored. So we know that Dolly 2, can create realistic images and, and art from tech description. It's been able to develop artwork that's sold through NFTs that you could actually sell it through sites like Etsy as well. So ChatGPT has been known to actually generate email or replies from any given prompt. It can deliver web results. It could do text summaries for your video. It could actually write your tweet. But the technology has also been used to generate some darker capabilities like malware, phishing email, stealing information. And eerily, it makes it difficult for even discerning humans to differentiate whether or not there is a human versus a computer-generated output. So some educators have said that while the tool is able to provide quick and easy answers, it doesn't actually build any kind of critical thinking or problem-solving skills, which they say are necessary for academic and our lifelong success. Let's look at this from the VC perspective. Most companies that were using generative AI last year were able to raise significant amounts of dollars. So I'm not sure if you've heard of Jasper, which was making an AI-powered marketing material, marketing materials. They raised $125 million. Runway, which was the company behind Stable Diffusion, which powers Lenza AI, received $50 million in Series C. So reports indicate that OpenAI right now could be valued at close to $30 billion. I'm sure Microsoft is really happy about that, considering they invested about a billion dollars back in 2019. So these are exciting times. However, we have to do, we have to address concerns about plagiarism, about forgery, about theft about the devaluation of work that's created by humans. So we're here to see whether or not generative AI is ready for mainstream. More importantly, can we trust its eventuality? So I'm going to welcome back Patricia, as well as Amir, who will tackle these questions about whether or not the world is ready and vice versa, and what will it mean to the future of society? So welcome back to you both. 
Okay, so let's start with this. I'm going to ask Amir the first question because people probably want to understand what's behind the technology. So can we define it? And how does it differ from, let's say, traditional machine learning? Definitely. So we are talking about models that are trained on generating text or images in the training stage. And then when we're using them in inference, like when you're using them for actual applications, they can do many different tasks. So that's what GPT stands for, generatively pre-trained uh, transformer, is a model that can be trained on predicting text. But if the model is large enough, all of a sudden it has this emergent phenomena that it can do a bunch of other text-related tasks. For example, if I want to know, if I want to categorize tweeted tweets from Twitter or other types of documents, I have to explicitly train a traditional model to understand how to do that task. But with these generative models, I can just train the model on predicting text and set it up to do those tasks without either with almost no new examples. So we could show it new examples to do slightly better job, but even without any new examples, it can perform almost as well. So the, the, the significance of generative models and applications that they're providing becomes more interesting when we get into the multi-mode scenarios where, you know, with something like DALI and what the stable diffusion did, where you can translate from text to images, right? So it is almost, you know, it, it's almost getting to the point where machines can have numerical representations of thoughts and ideas. Like they can type Apple sitting on a table in a sunset view, and the model can understand all of these different entities and how they are related to each other and then translate it into an image that represents the same idea. So that's a very significant progress that we have made. Like our models can understand entities and their relationship in a few different modalities like text, voice, image, etc. So the point of warning though, given the conversation that we're going to have further is that, you know, we have to always remember the capabilities and limitations of these models, right? So this is trained on a lot of data using models that are at best very good correlation miner. And if we forget that fact and try to use them as anything that is beyond a very good memorizer, a very good synthesizer, that's going to be problematic. And, you know, we've seen a lot of people trying to get a lot of different types of reasonings out of chat GPT and they say, oh, it fails. Well, of course it does. So I'm excited to see where it goes, but, you know, definitely a significant progress, at least at the front of making sure that machines understand natural language and other types of data and represent them as objects that are transferable to others. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amir. So both of you understand machine learning better than most, better than me, for sure, and model development. And you've seen how we've evolved the AI in the last couple of years. What is your opinion on the efficacy of either Dolly or ChatGPT or whatever generative AI you have used? Patricia, do you want me to start with you? Sure. In terms of the efficacy, I mean, it's very task dependent, right? It depends what you want to do with it. As Amir was saying, place unrealistic expectations of what it can do and put it in a task that it wasn't trained for. It's not going to do well. And you see that often with regards to uh, 
training a model for a specific data set and then giving it another data set and saying, oh, wait a second, it doesn't work in the legal space when it was trained in the insurance space. It's about understanding what the model's capabilities are and the model's capabilities within the parameters that were set initially for its use cases. With regards to ChatGPT, for example, I played around with it. Um, when it comes to answering factual questions, if you ask for a source, most of the time it seems to do fairly well and gives you a source. I'm sure it fails at some points. If you ask for it to give you something that no one's thought of before, that it can, it might be something you've never thought of before, but it's based on what humans have done, uh, what humans have written. So it's not going to be necessarily creating the original ideas. It can help in the creative process. It can help with giving you the context that you need for learning, for example, a wonderful learning tool. And it can help with when you're writing a blog post, for example, giving you specific paragraphs about a topic, but it's not going to curate that information for you when you're when you have that creative idea, it is your job as a human to go in there and say, this is relevant. This is not relevant. This is how this part links to this one for the context that I'm writing, etc. It can't do everything for us. It is an answer. Okay. That's good to know. Amir. Yeah. So definitely I agree with what Patricia said. And as I said earlier, the quote unquote superpower of these models now is their natural language understanding in certain case of GPT type of models and even DALI interface is natural language. So what they're really getting good at is understanding the content and relationships inside a task that you're giving them and instruction that you're providing. And obviously if your instruction is too convoluted or, you know, way out of the data set, the training data set distribution, as Patricia said, of course, it's going to have a bit of a challenge. So in our case. We've been looking at GPT type models for a while because, because of their multitask and natural language understanding capabilities. And for us, it is replacing a lot of interfaces that the user had with our product that were cumbersome. Now that these models have these capabilities, those can be replaced by just user typing what they're looking for. And then, you know, a conversation design that guides the user through constructing something that they're trying to do, right? Even if it is a very complex task. But just to talk about the problem that we sort of pointed out a little more formally, what we're talking about is generalization. Like these models have seen a bunch of data. They're trying to generalize to things that they have not seen, mostly based on correlation. But a lot of times people who post on social media about failure modes of chat GPT are given a reasoning task that to some extent it is able to do based on common sense reasoning, if that type of correlation existed in the data sets, but it cannot do causal reasoning, it cannot do counterfactual reasoning, which is very important for, for generalization. And that, if that's uh, absent, like that's the whole foundation of science, right? Like we do a lot of counterfactual reasoning, that's why we can generalize. And these models cannot do that yet. Therefore, they have that failure mode. So a lot of the time when you ask them things, and you expect factual results that are not just information retrieval from the internet. Like they actually have to reason, they fail. And that's a very important failure mode. Okay. So like if I were to translate that, it's almost like if you were asked, and I was listening to a friend of mine who actually asked ChatGPT, where did you get your reference source? And it couldn't do that. So what you're saying is that if it can't answer why right now. 
right? That's your, I guess, in, in layman's terms, the causal reasoning that we're talking about. It, it can answer why, if it is something that is explicitly or very close to explicitly has happened in the training data set. Like imagine an article that explains an idea, provides a bunch of resources, et cetera, et cetera. If that existed in the data set and you ask it, it will regurgitate that or a rephrasing of that. But if you do something that requires information from that article, along with a few other articles combined together and structured in a sort of a logical way to get to a conclusion, then it cannot do that. Okay. Got it. Okay. So Patricia, so you work in the privacy sector and you understand a lot of the negative impacts when it comes to data surveillance, data sharing, data breaches. Your company is actually trying to help minimize a lot of the impacts from these events. So what's your take on the data sets that are being used to feed models like ChatGPT, like Dolly? And what does it mean for your business and the clients that, that you serve? Yeah, great question, Hesse. So when it comes to the original data set that ChatGPT was trained on, it's web scrapes, right? In large part, there's a big question about, in a lot of cases, whether you can tell whether an information, piece of information was produced by a European citizen, for instance. And if it was, and it contains their personal information, then it has to be liable. You have to comply with the GDPR if you're using that information. Now, if you ask ChatGPT what they do with personally identifiable information, which means either uh, directly identifying names, credit card numbers, social security numbers, exact addresses, or things that indirectly identify you, for example, religion, approximate location, and so on. Supposedly, for personal identifiable information, they remove that from the training data and train the model without it. But the big question is, uh, when it comes to sure, IP of the data that's being used for training, that's one thing that we could get into. But also, that model is going to be fine-tuned with data that companies or individuals are sending them. And if you ask ChatGPT a bit more about what they do with PII, it's really about every business, every person sending that information, it's up to them to take care of the person and file information within their data. So you could be, if you just are using ChatGPT for your business, for customer service, for example, breaching PCI compliance, breaching HIPAA compliance, breaching GDPR compliance. And the safest thing to do when you are using it is to remove the personal information in the first place, replace it with fake personal information. And that's where private eye can come in and help. Okay. Thank you. I think when I think about this as well, is that you're feeding in your data, which is probably, I guess, devoid of any of the PII information, but it's also being added to an existing data set that may not necessarily have done the same thing, right? So, so you're still at risk in a way. Yeah. Also, I, the question is, if you're using these models, which may contain presented fiable information from other companies, is the question is, will these models start generating it back to you in, in, and suddenly you're liable for that PII? That's a big question mark in the legal space. I don't know if we have the answer to that yet. But I, it seems like OpenAI is taking some precautions regarding personal identifiable information, hopefully with regards to fine-tuning the model. But there's still the requirement of being able to see where your, personal identifiable, your customer's personal identifiable information are stored 
what is happening to it and be able to access access to information requests and rights to be forgotten. And when you're dealing with third party that's like OpenAI, who knows what will happen if you ask for your customer's data back. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So Amir, so there's also a large unknown about the data sets themselves and whether, let's say, despite the massive amounts of data points that they're collecting, there's still biased tendencies in what they output. How do you respond to that? So bias is not necessarily a bad thing, right? So the thing that has made chat GPT so good and the backend of it, instruction, instruct GPT, is essentially biasing the model to produce results that are more acceptable by human agent, right? So essentially that's like literally what they did compared to one of the earlier versions that was just spitting out whatever was on the internet. So they essentially sat down a bunch of people, annotators and said, ask it questions, rank the answers that are coming out and make sure harmful things are not in it and blah, blah, right? Like there were a set of guidelines that they were following. Like if it is spitting out people's sin number, mark it as bad, et cetera, right? So Essentially, we, we have biased the output of the model towards things that are acceptable by human standards, by our society's standards. So the bias exists in the data, and these models are just mining it and spitting it out. So the thing that I'm more worried about is how much do we understand the origins of the bias that exists in our text, and what control parameters do we have around handling them? For example, even if, even though OpenAI has spent a lot of time and money. There was some news about them hiring African annotators at large to just create these annotation data sets, for example. They've done all of these things, but then ultimately they have produced something that is much better than what it was. But I have friends who are very familiar to how these systems work. And importantly, they both, they work based on what we call prompting. And prompting is essentially a text that you write that prompts the system to produce an answer. And if you know the underlying data sets and the inner working of, of these models, you can construct your prompts to get around all of these safeguards. Because ultimately, all of these are probabilistic. Either probabilistically, it is more likely for them to produce a non-harmful result. But if you're malicious and you know what you're doing, you cannot write prompts that probably increase the likelihood of getting the information like a PII, et cetera. So there are a lot of interesting questions like the bias in data is given that exists. So th there are a lot of questions around, okay, can we understand the mechanics of that and can we create better safeguards around it? Thank you. So let's talk about the bad stuff because I read this thing about Patricia. I'll direct this to you. Researchers actually asked ChatGPT how it could be abused. And then this is what it said. It responded by AI technology can create convincing phishing emails social media posts and trick people into giving away personal information or click on malicious links to create video and audio that can be used for misinformation. So it's not actually already saying, hey, use me and abuse me. This is what I'm here for, right? So when we have technologies like these, how do we start to control like the bad stuff from emanating from them, especially when we know that legislation doesn't move as fast as technology? That's a really interesting question. And as far as I know, what OpenAI does is the reason why, one of the reasons, aside from using, getting more training data for their models, but one of the reasons why they collect the data is to also see how it's being misused and then help the model get better at dealing with that misuse. When it comes to 
technology companies and their responsibility of dealing with misuse of their technology and how that relates to regulation. I mean, that's something that comes up over and over again when we're dealing with technologies that are being used in ways that we don't expect, right? If we think about Facebook or Twitter and the use of misinformation to modify people's minds about when it comes to political leanings, that is something that regulators put a very heavy emphasis on tech companies to deal with. But tech companies themselves, even if they're trying their best, they also don't necessarily know how to deal with it. Regulators don't necessarily know how to deal with it. So it's very much a conversation between both to try to see where, what regulations need to be created, which is such a heavy, huge question. And there will always be people who are grumpy about the regulations because they'll say that it prevents innovation, for example, even for example, when it comes to privacy, when it act, in fact can do the opposite. And it's, I think that because we don't necessarily understand all of the ways that we can prevent this, it's really, really great to see how much research is going into it. It's important to keep putting money into that kind of research in academia and in industry. And ultimately, we will, we always have to adapt. The good thing is that it's there to, um, People are willing to try things. Okay, so let's talk about the future and mainly the implications for humanity. So there was this there was this quote I read from an educator that had concern about the threat to human creativity. And they said ChatGPT will be brutal in classrooms where writing is assigned rather than taught. So we now have the ability to develop output with the need for, without the need for things that we've used in the past, like references, like nobody uses the light. I don't know how many people go to libraries anymore, do you? Without maybe even the use for search or even professional subject matter experts who are really good at these things. So the other thing I read is chat GPT will not replace the motive for writing our human capacity for, or our human capacity for questioning. Because excellent writing starts with questions, and it's our hope that pervasive AI moves us away from teacher-created prompts towards student inquiries. So now we know humans are very different from machines. We're more analog, right? We're messy. We're imaginative. We don't necessarily have standards because we're always developing our personalities and our behaviors every time. So... When we, does accepting chat GPT results mean now that we prioritize outcome over process? I'll throw that to you, Amir. I do have a bit of a love-hate relationship with this questions around education and learning and knowledge, because I have a lot of problem with how it is done today. And I've been spending the past few years thinking about tools for thinking, right? Like essentially, how can we enhance our ability to think more effectively, like in academic context, in, as you say, in writing context, in education, a lot of other contexts. But that's definitely a very major question that is still evolving and we are still trying to find an answer. So when you look at the problem from that point of view, ChatGPT is yet another tool in that toolbox of you know, things that we have and through them we think. So writing is one outcome of that process, but you know, there are many other intellectual processes that you can imagine by like generating art, doing science, building products in industry, et cetera, et cetera. So when you think about those intellectual processes from 
a very fundamental point of view, they usually have three major components. Usually we use techniques to structure some information that we have in a particular way or find it or structure it in a particular way. We use the knowledge that we have to put things into context, for example. And then we use creativity to synthesize it in, in new ideas and new thoughts. So I give you an example, large language models are much better at mapping out syntax, for example, versus semantics, versus common reason, right? So the reason is that syntax is a more repeatable pattern. They're very good at picking that up as a technique that is used by people, right? So that's, there are research that shows that's the case, like syntax is easier to pick up for these models versus semantics versus common sense reasoning, as we extensively talked about. So now, you know, if you think about the process of thinking and creation, it starts by discovery. We use tools and techniques that we have to find pieces of information. Then usually we recontextualize that information to apply it to a particular new domain, like this podcast. We have collected information from different points of view. Now we are recontextualizing it in the context of this conversation. And then eventually the synthesizing process of putting it all together to say, these have coherent pieces that I'm providing right now. So what I'm hoping to happen and what I think will happen in short term is that tools like ChatGPT will remove the need to do the manual technical piece, like the techniques that you're using, for example, to write a piece of text that is technically correct. Like it can just completely remove the necessity for that. But, you know, and it can help us be better, more efficient at finding knowledge that is relevant for recontextualization. Uh, but the creativity part, I think, is going to still largely remain to us. Like people are talking about how Dali is creating creative, you know, images, but all of that creativity is really in the prompt that is given to the model. Like people are imagining creative things, they're typing it, and it's just re literally repeating what you did. So is good at getting the technique right, like the lighting and all of those things in the image, but you no, know, the creativity is still coming from the human. So I think that process is going to continue. The techniques are going to be more efficient. Finding knowledge is going to be much more efficient as well, but the creativity is still going to take a while to get to a point that can replace a human aid. This last question, will, which will go to both of you, actually expands on what you just said. There is this one student that actually was trying to help teachers to identify whether or not they actually use ChatGPT to see whether or not they could actually surface the cheaters in the classroom. And so it analyzed the output and his explanation was pretty intuitive. And he said, well, we look at the text perplexity, which measures its randomness. And they said that human written texts tend to be a lot more unpredictable than bot produced work. So we humans are complex beings. I don't think at any point in time, at least in the near future, we will become deterministic like machines are. Like people will start to understand human behavior and pattern. So are we ready from your perspective to acquiesce to the machines at some point? It probably not today, but maybe sometime in the future. What do you both think? Patricia, I'll start with you. Sounds good. So, I mean, humans still have to have that certain amount of data curation, as I mentioned before. When it comes to that particular model and learning perplexity, I wonder if they fine tune the model to their kind of style of writing, whether that would still work. 
thinking it won't. And I think we have to just have different standards at one point as to what to expect from students. When it comes to having something to aid you in writing, if you take an entire quote from ChatGPT, for example, you should probably say it came from ChatGPT. But whether or not you should be you should be penalized for that depends on the point of the exercise. If the point of the exercise, for example, is to write about particular technology trend, for instance, and ChatGPT helps you out with that, sure. I'm not convinced you have to be penalized for that as long as it's your creative ideas and as long as you are reading, you are learning the flow. You still have to write the introduction. You still have to figure out what the logic is behind it, where I think people might be surprised is that they might use ChatGPT expecting it to produce an entire essay, for example, and then uh, not knowing what the kind of quality that an essay has to be yet, because they're fairly young when they're probably doing this, not having gone through that feedback process, uh, they might think it's fine and real and then get a, a bad mark as a result and eventually learn you have to do your own curation you have to do the writing of certain aspects of it but for i i've hired content writers that seem to do a good job that i look at some of the posts and it looks like it's generated by chat gpt and then i have to hire them if you will and i think that there's a lot out there that could benefit from enhancement but also a lot out there that um, humans are already not very good at, and this isn't going to make them particularly better. And the ones who are actually good at the task are still going to stand out exceptionally well. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, Amir, last word. <laughs> so I take this as an opportunity for us to reflect on why do we do learning and how do we evaluate learning and where does learning actually happen? Like, I don't need to know today how to go find a book in a physical library because I can just pull up my phone and literally tell the assistant to give me some piece of information. So how does learning happen? Where does it happen? And how do you evaluate if it is actually useful? Like, I think that's a very valid question that we have to ask. If connecting a bunch of things and writing an essay is the way we are teaching our kids how to do things, that's cumbersome. That's already automated. Can we not think about a better way to do this? And on the topic of can we detect AI-generated information? Yeah, we can use measures like perplexity, as you said, but that's a moving target because the models are going to get better. Like even OpenAI is working on a cryptographic signature to embed in the code in the generated text so that machines can automatically detect that it was machine-generated. But if you're malicious enough, you're going to figure out how to get around it. I think. This is an opportunity to fundamentally think how we think and think about it. Thank you so much. I actually think that we're at a point now where it looks like humans will be used for, useful, at least for the next five years, before the next generated algorithm comes out. So thank you both for coming today. I think that's all we have time for. If you... Um, Within our audience, um, have suggestions or topics you want uh, to cover, please contact us at info at altitudeaccelerator.ca. By the way, we're all we're also accept accepting applications for both our winter programs in investor readiness as well as incubator. So please check out our website at altitudeaccelerator.ca. Join us next week when we actually tackle. 
the topic on data privacy. So in the meantime, everyone have fun and stay safe. Tech and Censored, an Altitude Accelerator podcast, does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and distributed by Bluemex. For more Tech and Censored content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.